Welcome back to Talking Ball, everyone. I'm Pat Leonard. We will go around the league like we always do, coming out of a crazy week, too. We will talk to Antoine Staley, the New York Daily News' Jets beat writer, my colleague, fresh off the airplane from Cleveland after a wild Jets victory. Joe Flacco, Robert Sala pumping their fist after getting it done. But we're going to start this New York football episode of Talking Ball with the 2-0 New York Giants. That's right. Six teams 2-0 in the NFL after week two. It's the Eagles, the Bucks, the Dolphins, the Bills, the Chiefs, and the Giants. With the Dallas Cowboys coming to MetLife Stadium for Monday Night Football in week three. Doesn't get any better than this. So many of these close games went the other way in years past. Now they're going the Giants way. They deserve credit for making these games go that way. Whether it's Graham Gano and four field goals, Wink Martindale's defense getting it done. Center John Feliciano honestly told me in the locker room after the game, we thank the Giants defense for what they did for getting this victory, for looking like they can help us get more down the road. And that's something you have to take away from the Giants start. It looks like if they're facing a team that doesn't have an elite quarterback, that Martindale's defense will consistently give them a chance. They might not win all the games, but they will likely be in these games in the fourth quarter. They did it to Ryan Tannehill and the Titans. They did it to Baker Mayfield and the Panthers. They have a Dak Prescott-less Cowboys team led by Cooper Rush. No slouch, but not Aaron Rodgers. They have the Houston Texans and Davis Mills on their schedule. They have Geno Smith with the Seattle Seahawks. This is actually something our guest on Talking Ball, Sal Palantonio, referenced and brought up And a point he made was that Martindale's presence in this division changed the calculus in the NFC East. So far, we've seen that is true. The Giants do not generate much pressure on the quarterback with a four-man rush. But Martindale times these blitzes well. You saw Julian Love make one of the plays of the game, a sack of Mayfield. The Panthers have to punt the ball away in the fourth quarter and never get it back. Just one example of how they are using their personnel to affect these games. We saw three safeties on the field most of this game compared to mostly two linebackers on the field in Tennessee. Jalen Smith now on the Giants defense signed to their practice squad, in my opinion, to be elevated and to play as a second effective inside linebacker against a run heavier approach from Tony Pollard, Ezekiel Elliott, and the Dallas Cowboys. This is how the Giants are going to evolve every week and try to put together a game plan to win. It's fascinating to watch. Not everything's perfect, though. What I like about Brian Dable and what I like about any head coach who handles things this way, he is putting together a plan every week for the Giants to try to win a game. And that could mean a player sitting that you don't expect, or it could mean benching a player who just hasn't earned it with his play the previous week. Now, you have to be consistent if you're a head coach doing this. If you're not consistent, if you're not genuine, it will not work players will see through if you are favoring players, if it's not a meritocracy. But I will give Dable credit for this after two weeks. He barely played Kadarius Toney in week one because he hadn't earned the playing time. He hasn't been on the field. In week two, he decides that David Sills gives them a better opportunity at wide receiver than Kenny Galladay. And Galladay only plays two snaps. In week two, not only did Martindale add more speed to the field with three safeties to attack the Panthers and Christian McCaffrey, but Austin Calitro, the inside linebacker, had not played well enough 
against Tennessee. So he sees only five snaps in week two. Dane Belton, the rookie safety, far from perfect in this game, by the way, but kudos to him for playing a heavy amount of snaps, but also an example of the Giants saying, let's put a guy on the field who we think can affect the game better than another player did the previous week. Now, this is all in the spirit of being constructive, building a foundation, but it's not just about winning the games this week. It's about building a culture of you have to earn it. And Joe Judge did this as a head coach. Pat Shermer was a little less consistent about the decisions week to week. But this is how you build a team. You show people what's expected, and if they don't meet it, then you let somebody else play and give them an opportunity because everybody else is working hard. Now, I will say this about Kenny Galladay. I think Kenny's going to respond well to this. I think Kenny Galladay is going to, again, at some point soon, be a major part of a game plan because it favors what the Giants need to do on that specific week. Kenny deserves some credit here. He was on the field all summer. He and Tony both were off the field in the spring coming off off off-season procedures. I knew about Tony's. We didn't know about Kenny's until late in the summer. Galladay was putting in the work. Galladay was on the field in training camp. Tony is the one whose hamstring acted up, who wasn't on the field a lot, who goes last in a lot of drills, who's kneeling with his helmet off often. Kenny Galladay is not that. And I don't think we should lump Kenny Galladay into some group of people who are not doing what it takes for the Giants. Now, did he look slower at the start of training camp? Sure. Nobody revealed until late in camp, including the team or Galladay, that he had some sort of procedure in the offseason. So I thought that was unfair to this wide receiver, frankly. Now, David Sills has earned time. Richie James has earned time. Sterling Shepard has earned time. So I'm not taking anything away from those guys. I'm just bringing up this, this point and this point only. Kenny Galladay is a professional. He's a veteran. He did not act up on the sideline during the Giants game against the Panthers, even though he wasn't playing, only two snaps in the red zone. I know he wasn't in the locker room afterwards. You'd like guys to stand accountable. But I think that once we hear from Galladay and once we see how the Giants deploy their personnel here in the future, I think he's going to be a part of what they do. I don't think he's not going to be a part of what this Giants team builds this year. Now, is this his final season as a Giant? Yes, I think it is. But I don't think he's going to cause a problem. I think he's going to be part of the short-term solution. Now, Daniel Jones, it wasn't perfect. It wasn't close to perfect. John Feliciano, the center for the Giants, actually thanked the defense in the locker room in front of me, kind of said it to me looking around the locker room. We thank them for winning this game. The the Giants offense knows that they didn't do enough. Daniel Jones missed a couple opportunities in the red zone. Sterling Shepard looked like he was open on one play. Kadarius Tony coming across the formation on a read option. Jones probably should have given it to Tony instead of keeping it. I know I'm Monday morning quarterbacking here, but frankly, I think he knows that those are missed opportunities. The throw right before halftime, almost intercepted in zone coverage by Frankie Luvu of the Panthers, a scary decision, just like Jones's in week one in Tennessee, intercepted in the end zone by Amani Hooker. And the fans were booing the 2-0 Giants going into halftime at MetLife Stadium in their home opener. So that's where the offense is. That's where Jones is on the, in these first halves. However, 
in a season where all the pressure is on number eight, in a season, in a week two, where Jones and the offense were looking like the thing holding the team back, he steps up and makes a big time throw on a third down to Richie James. He leads them on a touchdown drive to answer emphatically a three-play 67-yard touchdown drive for the Panthers with Baker Mayfield and DJ Moore leading the way. And I think Jones's toughness, Jones's resilience, when you what you saw from him on that last play icing the game, a naked bootleg where he takes it on himself to improvise, puts his foot in the ground past Henry Anderson, the defensive lineman for the Panthers, drives up the middle of the field into traffic, slides across the NFL logo across the 50-yard line. You saw how many teammates patting him on the helmet. And this is a guy that teammates respond to, that players believe in. It just adds such intrigue to the Giants' season because coming in, the expectations were low and it's still early. But we see Joe Shane obviously doing his job out on the road, scouting all of these quarterbacks. The Giants thinking maybe they'll have a high draft pick and maybe they'll be drafting their quarterback of the future. But Jones, if the Giants keep winning and he is a part of these wins as he has been, especially in week two, bouncing back, making that play at the end of the game, it'll be interesting to see how Dable, how Shane, how the Giants respond to that, how ownership responds to that, and how Jones, whether he can carve out a long-term future here, because let's just be fair, if the Giants are losing games and Jones is the reason why, we all know where it's headed. The Giants are winning games, and Jones is a reason why. Then where is that headed? This should be a meritocracy. Dable has shown it's a meritocracy, and we will see what Jones is able to earn if the Giants keep winning these games. We'll be right back on Talking Ball with Antoine Staley, the Jets beat writer for the New York Daily News. All right, welcome back to Talking Ball with Pat Leonard. Special guest with us on the New York football episode. The Giants are 2-0, but they were not a part of the most exciting game in New York football in week two of the NFL season. That was the New York Jets. Antoine Staley of the Daily News was there in person to see it go down. Antoine, thanks for joining us. I know you're fresh off the plane from Cleveland. Must be a whirlwind right now. Yeah, it was uh, it's definitely um, a great win and uh, just crazy because I think everybody thought the game was over when Nick Chubb scored that touchdown with 155 left in the game and uh, people were writing their stories. I'm, I'm sure you've been there. You know, you have the story <laughs> just kind of written up and all of a sudden, you know, things just got to go haywire. <laughs> You're going to have to change a whole lot of things uh, in a short amount of time. But yeah, it was definitely a win needed for the Jets too, especially because you don't want to go 0-2, especially coming back home to play Cincinnati team who's also 0-2 and, and, you know, probably going to be very angry uh, once they get to MetLife Stadium. (laughs) That's right. And lost to the Jets there last season as well. So take me inside the locker room in Cleveland with the Jets, inside that visitor's locker room. Just what was it like? Because we saw a couple clips of Joe Flacco on on television, but you were there. Like, tell us what that was like, the emotions um, in the visitor's room there. Exuberance. That's probably the best way I think they know how to describe it because, you know, you had a team that was, you know, you're coming off a very disappointing week one loss against the Baltimore Ravens. And, Mm -hmm. you know, this team all week to talk about where we're not the same Jets. We're not. uh, This is this is a totally different New York Jets team than it has been in years past. And then now uh, to put that all together, especially what they were able to do offensively, be able to score 14 points 
in in the first in the first half and also turn that around and score you know 17 in the second half and the fourth quarter in particular and Garrett Wilson just was just a man of us boys his second game in the NFL and you know to put up the yards and the amount of catches that he did uh, on 14 targets was just outstanding but everybody was just so excited as you can imagine and uh definitely you know a little bit of surprise but at the same time uh something that they knew that they had been talking about this team had been a little different all year long throughout the spring and summer and and kind of all just kind of came together in the win against cleveland I'm glad you mentioned kind of the the talk leading up to the game because I wanted to ask you about everyone was talking about in the league, obviously, when Robert Sala seemed to have his backup and he said, We're, I'm taking receipts on all the people who continually mock us. And, you know, can you tell us how was that received by the players going into the game? How much do they have Sala's back? Is this game an indi- indication of this? And then also, did you get a sense for maybe the pressure on Salah coming out of making those comments to deliver and how that maybe was received around the league or in the Jets building, you know, in the front office, et cetera? Well, I, I, I'll tell you, like, uh, I'll mention the first, the second part first because, yeah, it's a lot of pressure making those comments because a lot of people, I mean, I think, I don't know if people were mocking the Jets as much as uh, after the week one loss, but after he made the comments, he was definitely getting a lot of blowback on social media and things of that nature because people were saying, oh, you know, like taking receipts, like the Jets hadn't been good, hadn't made the playoffs since 2010. So how, <laughs> you know, and they just, you know, I, I got a whole bunch of comments in regards to that. So it was a lot of pressure on him, on them to deliver this particular week, to be able to come back and, you know, after that loss against the Ravens, to be able to put it together and get a win. But that, as far as like your, com- your question about the players, they backed it up. Like they, they loved those comments by Robert Sala. They felt like they felt pressure to be able to want to produce for him because he made comments like that. And that goes a long way in the locker room. When players have your back like that and want to stick up for you and want to be able to prove you right on the field. And mm-hmm. yeah, they definitely felt like, you know what? The coach has our back. He's staying up for the locker room. We need to go out there and put out put a good foot forward and put out a great performance, unlike we were able to do against Baltimore. And I think you kind of saw that. And what about the comment he made? I think it was in an ESPN radio interview where he said yes. that this was an expansion franchise before Joe Douglas got here. Like, is that is that something that a head coach in the NFL can say and not receive um, <laughs> pressure or blowback from? you know, either ownership of the team that is employing him and paying him or his colleagues around the league when you say something like that. Yeah, I, I don't think I've ever heard like a former coach, I mean, a coach take a shot at a former regime like that. Like that was pretty direct. Um, yeah, I, I, yeah I, I've never, like I've heard like people kind of dance around the question or something like that, but he directly, you know, <laughs> just came out and said, you know what? This is not a good organization. This is not a good roster when we took over, which I think everybody knew that it was a bad situation, you know, from Adam Gase and that whole regime there. And I think that's part of the reason why I've told people just you kind of have to be patient. This is only his second year in the league, uh, his second game in his in year two. And, you know, it's going to yeah. take some time for everything to come together. And but, yeah, I, I've never, you know, heard anything like that. Like, like the receipts comment is one thing, but also the kind of the you know, the blowback he received from just taking a shot at uh, Adam Gase and, you know, the former general manager, too, of the Jets, too, as well. So, yeah, it was, yeah, yeah. It, it was definitely interesting <laughs> to hear that. Right. So so then take me to the to the first quarter. They go down 7 nothing early. 
And they call a fake punt. Braden Mann executes it with Jeff Smith, and then the Jets go down and score. When you're sitting there and watching, did that come off at the time to you as a desperate decision by Sala, or was that a an all gas, no breaks, this is how I'm always going to coach kind of decision? I think it was a tone setter. I think, I think obviously, I think last week it was very vanilla offensively. And I came into this week saying that, you know, Mike LaFour needs to, you know, spice it up a little bit, like have some creativity to the offense. And I definitely, I guess they read the article because they, they definitely did that uh, this upcoming <laughs> week too. They ran some jet sweeps there. They ran some slants to Garrett Wilson, got him the ball early. And in that situation, they felt the offense was seeming like, oh, well, this, this looks like last week where the offense looked completely flat. And then to be able to run that fake punt like that and, you know, Jeff Smith making that big play, I think that gave the team some energy, some juice that they that they desperately needed. And, of course, like it's, like you said, they went out and scored a touchdown. Uh, got another one um, before halftime too as well. But, yeah, I definitely think the offense seemed like it was just stagnant, just like running in place there and until – until that play happened, and I felt like that really gave them life and also uh, turned the whole game around. And so when I look at the NFL passing leaders coming out of week two, I look at, I see <laughs> I see Herbert is fourth and Mahomes is fifth, and you expect that. I see Joe Flacco sitting third with 616 passing yards. So you're mentioning Mike LaFleur, the offense, what they had to do coming out of week one. But just flat out, for people who either have been watching every snap or haven't watched the Jets yet, why is Flacco third in the NFL in passing right now? Well, I mean, yesterday, I mean, it was just like a crazy performance that they put on, uh, to be quite honest with you. Uh, Joe Flacco, uh, I'll give you a stat, too. He is the first quarterback, Jets quarterback to have back-to-back you know, 300-yard games since Chad Pennington in 20, 2006. Get so, out of here. That is a yeah. great stat. <laughs> Yeah, so that that's how far it goes back. But yeah, I mean, the first first game of the season, he threw for three hundred yards. A lot of that was kind of garbage time when when the Jets were down by so much and trying to get something going. But yesterday, I mean, you know, down um, in the game too as well, and especially in that fourth quarter where they scored seventeen points, Flacco was just you know hitting the sidelines, hitting the middle, you know, going to Garrett Wilson, and you really don't see that you know, a veteran going to a young guy like that. So early on in his career, but he clearly mm-hmm. has a lot of confidence in Garrett Wilson to be able to make some plays. And, you know, even, you know, after the drop by Garrett Wilson, uh, that, you know, that at that time it looked like it might have sealed the deal for the Jets, too. He kept he went back to him whenever they got the ball again. And, you know, he produced and ended up scoring the game, winning touchdown, of course, and went up winning the game. But, yeah, Flacco, I, I definitely think, you know, week one was a little bit shaky. A lot of Jets fans wanted him benched there and put Mike White in, but the offensive yeah. line did a much better job. Joe Flacco did a much better job with decision-making, and I definitely think you saw that yesterday against the Browns. Flacco, 26 of 44, 307, four touchdowns. You have mentioned Garrett Wilson about five times, so I need to ask <laughs> you about him. And I know you've mentioned him five times for a reason, yeah. but I, I wanted to bring something up too. You had a quote in your story about him going into the week. I know he spent a lot of his childhood in Dublin, Ohio, he had a quote where he said, the air is real smooth in Ohio. You know, how did you interpret that, first of all? Because it almost sounded like a, a guy who was confident he was going to perform at home. But it, was there something special about this game where he was playing it and that's part of why he balled out? Or do you see special qualities in this kid 
And that's not only why he's producing, but why Flacco is throwing him the ball so regularly, like you said. It's both. It's definitely both. Uh, I think, you know, wanting to produce, wanting to go home, and, you know, you have like 30 of your family members there uh, for a game in Ohio. Uh, Columbus isn't that far away. Like you say, you mentioned Dublin, you know, where he kind of spent a lot of his childhood. But, yeah, I definitely think, you know, wanting to produce in front of your family members and have a great game. He was signing autographs before the game uh, to Ohio State fans who made the trip. So, you know, he kind of broke their hearts at the end of the game, uh, obviously. But, you know, I think a lot of people were very happy to see him. He still has a lot of ties to the Ohio area. But, yeah, I think he's an absolute stud. Like I said, I hate to put labels on players, but, you know, he kind of reminds me a little bit of Justin Jefferson in the way just kind of his route running and some of the things he does uh, just – you know, the speed and the precision and everything like that. And also he's level-headed too as well. He's not like a diva-type receiver there. He's one mm-hmm. of those guys that, you know, has a good head on the shoulders, played at Ohio State, you know, obviously played with a lot of big-time receivers there, had another one, Chris Olave, who was drafted in the f- first round too as well as for the Saints. And, you know, he's he has a, like a – silent confidence about himself that Mm. you know you really don't see uh with a lot of players especially coming out of college these days so yeah i I definitely think he has all the tools to be a successful receiver and i think you kind of saw some of that that glimmer of that yesterday the jets were down 13 with 155 to play they became the first team to overcome a 13 point deficit inside the two minutes of the fourth quarter to win a game since 2001 that stack courtesy of Peter King's Monday morning quarterback. So Antoine, is is this sustainable? Because obviously they benefited Cade York misses a, a late PAT and the Jets deserve all the credit in the world for coming back, showing some fight. Their schedule, you mentioned it early on about the Bengals. Bengals at Steelers, Dolphins at Green Bay, at Denver versus New England versus Bills, then they're by. Can they continue to win with the way that they have been playing in these games? They've been falling behind. Uh, is Flacco's arm, is Michael LaFleur's evolving offense, is Salah's discipline and determination and the never give up attitude of the team? Do you think they can sustainably, consistently win games this season with this schedule with how they've been playing so far? At the beginning of the year, I probably would have said no because the schedule is daunting. Like you look at it and you're like, that is brutal that they gave him that type. They gave him all the AFC North opponents like right in a row. And then you got to go play the Dolphins division rival who, by the way, you know, had their big comeback yesterday too. I'm sure we'll get into that shortly, but yeah, I mean, I think the schedule, the thing you find out is that the game time goes on and the schedule, you kind of find out what these teams are. You find out Cincinnati has some kinks in their armor. They still have some of the issues that were plaguing them last year with the offensive line. Joe Flacco, I mean, Joe, Burroughs got sat 13 times, I believe, in two weeks. I mean, he's not sure. he's not going to be up upright, you know, the whole season if that continues. So that's definitely something that if you're the Jets defense, you're licking your chops at. Uh, Pittsburgh, I mean, they end up losing to New England. You know, who's to say the Jets can't possibly go in there and, you know, get out of win there and um, whatever it's called. Now, I was going to say Heinz Field, but I, I don't even know what it's called now <laughs> anymore. Right, I don't but, remember. Uh, I just got then, I got uh, Brownie the Elf on the brain still from Cleveland. That must have been weird to see. Is that well? I actually like the Elf logo. Some people don't, but All right. but yeah, I mean, division games can go either way. Uh, obviously, Buffalo and I think the Dolphins are have shown their playoff team. But yeah, I think I think what you want to see is just growth from this Jets team. You don't want them to 
yeah, they're going to have their bumps in the road, especially when you have a young team like this. But you definitely yeah. just want to see them uh, continue to grow and just eventually evolve into a potential playoff team. I had them picked for seven wins this year. You know, okay. I kind of got a little nervous uh, after the Ravens game, but <laughs> I figured if they win this, then I still feel like they could possibly get there. And then we'll see what happens when Zach Wilson comes back, possibly against the Pittsburgh Steelers in a couple of weeks too, as well. But yeah, I definitely think they could sustain this. I just think they, you know, if they can, they can run, use the run game too as well to um, also generate some pass offenses as well and keep whoever the quarterback is upright. Then yeah, I definitely think they could win seven, maybe eight. You know, eight games, maybe if things fall out the right place, too. But we'll see. Well, I'm glad you mentioned Zach Wilson because that's what my next question was. So, obviously, Zach Wilson is the future. Joe Flacco is not. You wish Zach Wilson were healthy and hadn't gotten hurt, hadn't needed the surgery. But when Flacco has a game like this, when you see the players rally around him, the coaches rally around him. I mean, Robert Sala talks about him like he's his favorite guy on the team. When Zach Wilson comes back, is it just as simple, Antoine, as this kid's our future, our high draft pick, he's going back in, no matter what Flacco is doing? Is that what you do if you're Joe Douglas, Robert Sala, and the Jets? Or do you have something to think about if Flacco carries the Jets to another win against Cincinnati? Uh, you know, Do you maybe extend Wilson's recovery time? How do you view all of that? I think you just play it by week to week. You know, if the team continues to rally around Joe Flacco and he keeps putting up these 300-yard games and you keep winning, then, you know, don't take it out. Don't take him out. I mean, I think Bill Parcells said this once that, yeah, you can lose your job because of injury. And, you know, if the team is doing well with Joe Flacco. The Jets hadn't, you know, like I say, they, they've gone 11-plus years without making the playoffs. If Joe mm-hmm. Flacco all of a sudden turns into Kurt Warner late on his career, kind of <laughs> what happened with Kurt Warner and Matt Liner when they had drafted Liner uh, like tenth overall from the Cardinals, mm-hmm. yeah, just just ride out the hot hand. Like maybe it lasts, you know, five or six games. Maybe it lasts the entire year. But yeah, I definitely think you just play it week to week, see how things go, and then take it from there. But if Flacco keeps winning, then I don't see any reason why to you know go away from that, despite. You know, I, I think Zach Wilson, I know why Zach Wilson is the future of the team, but mm-hmm. yeah, Flacco just keep, you know, if you're putting up 300 yard games and like two or three touchdowns and you continue to win, you know, why mess up with my mess up that recipe of success? Man, what, what a, what a crazy intriguing uh, evolution of the season it would be if the Jets turned out to be so successful with Flacco that there was actually a controversy over whether to play Zach Wilson, who was the obvious have to start him prior to that preseason injury. That would be that would be a wild thing to follow and to follow in your New York Daily News coverage. Antoine is now the, covering the Jets and writing about the NFL. I'm doing the Giants writing about the NFL, so we're colleagues now. Um, it's great having him on board with the Daily News. Super excited. Um, glad you were able to get such an exciting experience in Cleveland. And before we move off the Jets, I wanted to ask you about their defense because we talk a lot about their offense here, but Cleveland did have 184 yards rushing. Uh, They were eight for 12 on third downs. So we're excited about the Jets victory. You're a Jets fan. You're excited about what Flacco and the offense did late, some of the special team successes. But who is standing out and helping on defense? And then what needs to be cleaned up on that side of the ball for them to be able to handle Joe Burrow and the Bengals? Well, we talked about the tell of two weeks between the Ravens and Browns game, but it was also like that with defense too. 
despite them went losing last week, they held Lamar Jackson to 17 yards rushing, which I think is pretty, you know, outstanding. Incredible. They were able to do that and limit that rushing game. However, you know, they did give up some big plays in the passing game. And, you know, it did, of course, the Ravens ended up winning. Yesterday, you know, the rush game against Nick Chubb, Nick Chubb just ran all over him for three touchdowns. And, you know, it, it's tough because he's one of the better, better running backs in football. Uh, I definitely think the rush defense certainly has to improve there as well. You hope mm-hmm. so, especially when you got Joe Mitson coming to town, who was another dynamic running back there. So, yeah, they definitely have to clean that up. And also get consistently get pass rush on the quarterback too. You got the Bengals. We talked about their issues protecting Joe Burrow. Uh, it's up to guys like Carl Lawson, uh, Jermaine Johnson, you know, John Franklin Myers to be able to get consistent pressure on the quarterback position. So, yeah, I definitely think they – I think those are the things that kind of stick out. But as far as specific players, I think Jordan Whitehead is sticking out. Also, Sauce Gardner. I've been really impressed with Sauce because mm. it's hard to be a rookie cornerback in this league because you got these receivers, like – you're and you're coming from, you know, a league – like he played in the American Conference at Cincinnati, and then you're yeah. coming from that to – the NFL where you're going up against guys like Jamar Chase and Mike Evans or, or even like Stephon Diggs or later on he'll go up against Jalen Waddle or Tyreek Hill on a consistent basis. But he's yeah. held his own at least the first couple of weeks of the season. Now he's going to get a tremendous test this upcoming week with Jamar Chase. So, yeah, we're really going to see – it's going to be kind of a measuring stick game to see where really he is, you know, at his maturation in the NFL. But I have been impressed so far with him. One thing that's exciting, I think, if you're a Jets fan or just even an NFL fan looking and listening to what you're saying about this team is you're saying that some of the blue chip prospects, you know, Sauce, you're mentioning Garrett Wilson, you're talking about young players who are making plays. And, you know, I'm covering the Giants every day. You're at the Jets every day. Teams that are rebuilding and trying to build for the future, but also when you need those contributions from these guys now and also good signs that they are building towards the player and prospect, especially when you drafted them in the first round, like the players were talking about. So who knows if the Jets have the quarterback position solved long-term, which is a huge question as we've talked about. But I feel very encouraged listening to you that some of these young players are, yes, it's not perfect, but they're working through it and they're making plays in a victory on the road in a hostile environment like Cleveland. That's great to see. Antoine, I wanted to ask you yeah, too. I mentioned a little I was, bit. I was going to say real quick. Yeah, I need yeah, sure. to Brees Hall or Jermaine Johnson. Jermaine, like Brees Hall had a, you know, led the team in rushing yesterday. So, you know, props to him as well. He's also somebody mm. that's standing out there. They have kind of like a two-headed attack with him and Michael Carter. And then Jermaine Johnson got his first sack against the Ravens. So, yeah, they, they, they're hitting on their pits at least so far. We'll see if that continues. So speaking of making big impacts in first year, you, as I mentioned, you've just come to the New York Daily News making a big impact already. And you know, just for our listeners, especially in the New York area, could you tell me and tell them a little bit about what you've done prior to this, how you got here, or what you've covered? Because I know you have a ton of experience covering football. I just wanted you to explain it to the listeners as you've explained it to me. Well, I, as some people might know, yeah, I covered the Dolphins for like seven years there for various outlets, including USA Today and the Palm Beach Post, which is down there in South Florida. So, yeah, I got a chance to, you know, 
see a lot of, you know, mediocre football that way too. And then I covered the, you know, Carolina Panthers too as well for a couple of years. And, you know, prior to coming here, I was covering the Oregon Ducks there and also I covered Florida State for a year, the Florida State Athletics and Football. So, yeah, I have a ton of football experience, whether it be college or pro football. So, yeah, you know, I'm just glad to be here and, you know, be amongst this exciting journey, especially with you too as well. So, yeah, I think it's like a good tag team that we have going on. And I'm glad that you mentioned Miami and the seven years of the Dolphins because that just lets the listeners know, you know Miami, you know the Dolphins, you know Hard Rock Stadium in the back of your hand. Tua Tagovailoa, six touchdown passes, Antoine. <laughs> Tua beating the Baltimore Ravens. Huge comeback, throwing the ball down the field. Let's just be honest. He did a lot of things that a lot of people, a lot of doubters, including me, didn't think he could do. I mean, this guy's doing setting a record-setting performance in an NFL game against a team that a lot of people are picking among one of the best in the AFC when all is said and done with Lamar Jackson. From what you know about the Dolphins, from what you know about that organization, and what you know just from around the league and, and about two at two, were you surprised by that performance? Why do you think it happened? Do you think that's an anomaly? Do you think he is capable of this every week? Well, not six touchdowns, definitely no. <laughs> but uh, I, I mean, I looked up the stats. I was like, when's the last time I seen a six touchdown performance? And I remember Miss Trubisky had one his rookie year, which I was like, like Ooh. really? Like I can't, I can't. Rem- I, I forgot. I mildly forgot about that. And then I was like, wow, yeah. So, yeah, him and Mahomes had one uh, not too long ago. I think 2018, they both mm. each had one. But, yeah, I think uh, – I, I look, I think the Dolphins have been smart to add the pieces they have around Tua. They know his limitations. They know he's, you know, had some injury concerns there. They've improved the offensive line. They got some speed. You know, adding Tyreek Hill to go with Jalen Waddle. Also have Cedric Wilson there as well. You know, Chase Edmonds in the running running game too as well. So, They've improved yeah. the offense a ton there. So they're just asking Tua, just don't lose the game for us. Don't make mistakes and just rely on your playmakers. And, yeah, I definitely think they can do that. He doesn't have to go out there and be uh, Patrick Mahomes or anybody like that. He, they just need him not to you know, make minimal mistakes and turn the ball over. They, they Wait, did that early hey, on in the game. But hold on a second. Hold on a second. This is what I'm saying. Yes, he looks like a game manager. Yes, it looks like, hey – make these short throws, catch and run. That's not what happened here. He was gunning the ball down the field. Yeah. He was launching it over top of the defense to Waddle and Hill. Oh, so yeah. if you're Mike McDaniel, do you watch this tape? Do you look at this game and say, wait, he can do it. You know, we got to open this thing oh, up. Yeah. Or do you, do you rein it back into, no, like this is the, this is the recipe. We'd rather not be in a two, a chuck it mode. I think it depends on your opponent, too, because, I mean, Styles kind of make fights, too. And then we know the Ravens were dealing with a lot of injuries, especially in the secondary. So, yeah, I mean, why not have them air it up? But we, they know he can do it. They have a confidence that Tua can throw the ball deep when a lot of people were doubting, you know, his ability to do that. So, yeah, I definitely think it'll be times where, you know, he throws the ball, you know, at some out of 30, 40 times maybe a game because they need him to. But I also think it might be times where – yeah, you know, you have a good secondary. You decide, you know what, maybe it's better to run the ball just for, you know, be game manager too as well. So I think it's just going to depend on the opponent. Like Buffalo, they got Buffalo coming up next week. I doubt he throws the ball like that. If he if he throws the ball like that against the Bills <laughs> and they have that success, then 
I, I think the Dolphins might have a chance to get to the Super Bowl if they're able to do something like that. But wow. yeah, I, I definitely, uh, I think it's going to just, they're going to, you're going to see it a little bit raining back against the Bills a little bit. But, you know, playing down in Miami, you know, after what I saw against the Ravens, you know, I gave them a puncher's chance to be able to pull that out. Well, and so you're leading me right into my final question, which is, can they win this division? Can the Dolphins win the AFC East with the Buffalo Bills? Uh, the Patriots obviously don't look like the team they used to be, but they do eke out a win against Pittsburgh. Bill Belichick can't count them out. The Jets showing some spark here with Joe Flacco. So how do you see this division shaking out? And most importantly, is Miami a contender to um, unseat Buffalo at the top of it? The Bills are, Bills are my Super Bowl pick, so I'm gonna, still going to stick with that. However, you know, I, I think I think the Dolphins can challenge them certainly, especially with the playmakers they have uh, at the skill position players, at skill position positions. Uh, I just think it it was going to come down. They have not beaten the they have not beaten the Bills since 2018. I was still covering the beat then. They've only beat Josh Allen one time in his career, his very first game against the Dolphins. I didn't know that. After that, they, he ran off seven consecutive wins against Miami. So Jeez. until until I see them actually beat Josh Allen in the Bills, then no, I, I'm I'm still going to go with Buffalo to win that division. But I do think the Dolphins are a wild card team, and you know if they match up with the Bills three times, who knows what might happen? Whenever you play a team three times, you kind of know what they do. You know what they do, and they know what you do. Then you know maybe they could pull off a win in the playoffs. But as of right now, yeah, I'm definitely picking the Bills. He is Antoine Staley from the New York Daily News. Antoine, thank you for joining us right off the plane from Cleveland, unpacking this Jets win. And uh, we will hopefully talk to you down the road. Thanks again for joining us. Thank you, Pat. All right. Welcome back to our two-minute drill. We're going to do a segment called Wide Right and Wrong, where I review things that I saw coming in the preseason and things that I was way off on through two weeks. You could time me if you want, just like the Denver Broncos home fans were counting down the play clock for Russell Wilson and rookie coach Nathaniel Hackett. If you didn't see that, if you didn't hear that, go on the NFL app, watch the the condensed game, like six minute highlight reel. It is remarkable to see how much pressure and frustration the fans are putting on that new regime with Wilson and Hackett right away for good reason. These games aren't being coached well. A lot has to change there very quickly. So let's go to what I got right. The Indianapolis Colts were overrated. Shut out by the Jacksonville Jaguars. There was some idea that Matt Ryan being quarterback and Carson Wentz not being there was going to turn them into a Super Bowl contender. I know the owner, Jim Ursay was disgusted with the lack of leadership he felt Wentz brought. But you look at what's going on there, and obviously they're missing... Shaq Leonard, the linebacker right now, formerly Darius Leonard, who is their best player, you know, him and maybe Jonathan Taylor, the running back and Quentin Nelson, the left guard. Uh, But that's a huge loss. But the Colts are not the team that people were picking them to be. I was right on that. I was also right about the other team in that game, the Jacksonville Jaguars. They're competitive. Dougie P has the Jaguars believing they're only one and one, but I think that team's going to win that division. I think they're going to win the AFC South. I was right that Washington, with Carson Wentz at quarterback, was going to score points. Now, their offense was disappointing in the early part of this game in Detroit, where they lose, and obviously, overall, you're not happy with that performance. But 
the idea that Wentz with Jahan Dotson, Terry McLaurin, and Curtis Samuel was going to put points on the board, that has happened through two weeks. They're averaging 27.5 points per game, and it keeps them in games. It means they have a chance. I was right that the Philadelphia Eagles looked like they would be even better than some people thought uh, coming out of a strong offseason. Now, the defense seems to need work, especially after week one. Uh, but they smothered the Vikings on Monday Night Football. Jalen Hurts looks like the real deal. How can you not believe in him? And the Eagles are the clear, overwhelming favorite still in the NFC East, even though the Giants are also 2-0. That will be really exciting to watch. If the Giants, if they beat the Dallas Cowboys on Monday Night Football, then suddenly maybe we're having a whole other conversation going into week four. And I was right about the fact that even though nobody wanted to see Trey Lance get hurt, and I feel terrible for the kid, I was right that the rest of the NFL saw Jimmy Garoppolo stay in San Francisco on that reworked contract and said, that's not good for us. Because what did you see here? Lance goes down, Garoppolo goes in, and suddenly everybody is more scared of the 49ers now than they were on Saturday night going into week two's games. The Niners are positioned again to be a contender to get to the NFC Championship, if not the Super Bowl, providing, of course, that they stay healthy. But I was wrong too. I was wrong that the Las Vegas Raiders coaching edge was going to manufacture and develop and create wins early and that they were going to be a premier team in the NFL coming out of the gate. It's still early. They were both close games. They could have won both of them, but they found ways to lose. I thought that was a phantom holding call, defensive penalty on the Raiders at the end. I think it was on a fourth down in the red zone that really the game would have been over. So I do think that the refs played a part, but it surprises me that Josh McDaniels and Pat Graham and Mick Lombardi, that that staff has lost these two games given the personnel they have. Derek Carr needs to play better. There's no question about that. Hunter Renfro has to stop fumbling the ball, but it surprises me, and I was wrong. The Raiders start 0-2. Tua. I was wrong. Everyone was wrong. Now, this doesn't mean he solved everything. This doesn't mean he's a different quarterback than he was two days prior. What this does mean, though, is that people like me are wrong when we thought he could never do something like this. 36 of 50, 469, six touchdown passes, leading the NFL in passing yards after two weeks. This kid has taken a lot of heat. And listen, the Miami Dolphins gambled on him. They fired Brian Flores. I, just like many other people, thought that they went the wrong direction, that it was unfair to Flores. I still do. That said... I did not think this quarterback had it in him, had this kind of game in him, and I'm happy for him that he had this kind of game. Tyreek Hill, Jalen Waddell are incredible athletes and talents and incredibly fast, but I did not think that Tua would go down the field this effectively in a win, especially a game where Lamar Jackson, the former MVP, is on the other side having a day of his own. So it wasn't perfect, but this is the kind of game nobody saw coming from Tua. So kudos to him. And finally, I don't know if I was wrong about this, but I definitely did not see coming 
that the Detroit Lions, after two weeks, were going to be averaging 35 and a half points a game. Second in the league behind the Bills. 35 and a half. Jared Goff, DeAndre Swift, Amon Ross St. Brown. This is a team on the Giants' schedule. This is a team that I think everybody looked at on their schedule and, and chalked it up as that's an e- easier or favorable game. Listen, their defense is going to give up points, but no more are you excited to play the Detroit Lions and Dan Campbell's bunch. Now, thanks for tuning in. As always, please look on my Instagram for Pat's Picks. That's where I'm going to list all of my picks for every game, every week against the spread. This week, I'm going to look at the Giants and the Cowboys. I believe FanDuel has the Giants as one and a half point favorites. Sounds right. I think it's going to be low scoring. I think it's going to be close. I do think that the Cowboys are going to win a close game. Reason being, the Giants did not turn the football over against Carolina and still barely won the game by three points. And I think Micah Parsons and the Cowboys' defense is going to force them into some mistakes, which is going to convert some points for the Cowboys and lead to a road victory for Dallas. But the Giants deserve to be considered a contender in these games. They deserve to have a chance to win these games because of Martindale's defense. And it's going to be an exciting one on Monday night at MetLife Stadium. That's all for me, Talking Ball. See you next time. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.